Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwald. There is no Eliana Johnson here, but you are still welcomed to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. And you might have guessed that we are having a guest interview, the interviews edition of Ink Stained Wretches. You already know that because you read the description for this podcast before you clicked on it. So we will not waste any more time in telling you that John Ward is joining us. And I am very pleased that John Ward is joining us because I admire the heck out of John Ward. Things that I admire John Ward for are being a reliable, factual, savvy reporter on presidential politics, particularly somebody whose work I have used, relied on over the years in many iterations. I admire him because he managed to write a book that is a good book and will manage to not please anyone entirely which is what I use as the mark of good writing, which is he doesn't let anybody off the hook. In his new book, Testimony, which I read and enjoyed. And John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. It's good to be part of the many people contributing to the constitution of knowledge, as Jonathan oh, Rausch puts it. Well, I don't know if that's what Inkstained yeah. Wretches does, but <clears throat> we do have jokes. <laughs> so I'm going to say from the outset, I'm going to work really hard to not let this become a theology podcast because that's where, when I read your book, it hit a lot of tripwires for me in terms of my own growing up and my own experience, which was different than yours in significant ways. Mm -hmm. I was coming, my parents were, interestingly, my parents came into the non-denominational evangelical movement through my sister who was part of the same generation as your parents. My parents were older and from a traditional, Mm. my mother had been raised Roman Catholic and left the church, but my father was part of a long line of Calvinistic, frozen chosen, Mm. Scots-Irish and German Americans. And they came into the non-denominational evangelical space in a church gymnasium in Wheeling, West Virginia at a Vineyard Christian Fellowship in the early 1980s and kept a foot sort of in both worlds, and so did I. And so I, I related to an enormous amount of what was in your book and really related to it, and it is really well done. That having been said, I cannot promise to completely resist allowing this to devolve into a discussion of religion and theology, and I will do my level best to keep this about journalism. But so that we can try to do that, will you walk our listeners through the story of your career, where you started, where you worked, what you're doing now? Sure. I came out of college at the University of Maryland in 2001 and wait, no, 1999. And I, I taught high school for two years, actually, at a small high school in the, Maryland, in the DC suburbs. And then I wanted to start writing for a living. And that's about as, as much as I knew. And I got an unpaid internship at the Washington Times back in the fall of 2001. And I spent the next eight years there. Started, you know, as a clerk after the internship. Supposed to be grabbing faxes. And I was like, screw that. I'm writing copy. And, you know, just kind of beat the streets. Worked on the city desk. 
did everything and anything. After several years of that, actually, I finally started covering the Maryland legislature in 2006. And then I got moved over to Congress for three months at the start of 2007. I was terrible at that. And so they moved me. They moved me to the White House because they had people moving over to the campaign at that point. So they needed a warm body at the White House. And that was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I got to travel the world and cover the White House with people like Jake Tapper and Major Garrett and other great journalists. And then I went to Tucker Carlson's Daily Caller in 2009 and helped them launch that. I was there for about 14, 15 months, went to the Huffington Post with a brief detour at News Corp at the Daily. Oh, yeah. Um, the Daily. And I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I was there for all of like two weeks. Well, maybe a it month. wasn't there um, for that much longer than that. So it wasn't much longer. No. And I was at HuffPost for about three years. And then nine years ago, I came to Yahoo News. And for the last, when I went to HuffPost was when I really started covering campaigns. That was 2011. So I covered the 12 cycle very closely, mostly Republican, not primary. 16, kind of more of the same. And I would say since, since, the 16 election, I've been doing more and more just attempting to, to think about, write about, not just sort of what's wrong, as you said in your intro, but you know what's causing our problems mm -hmm. and, and what are some of the potential solutions for these things. Yeah, why, why is it the way that it is? Yeah. My favorite part of your book was your discussion about getting into the news business and in huh. the wake of nine around the time of 9-11 and 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 how you came from a family where no one had thought about right being being a journalist was not certainly in my family was not something my sister had worked for a newspaper we knew people in the news business but it was not like a ah this would be a normal thing for chris to do but no one in your orbit was Journalism was not part of the part of the story for you, and it's not something that you probably would have contemplated. But I want to read this passage from your book. Journalism continued to come up in my conversations with people who were kind enough to meet with me or take my phone calls asking for advice. It was clearly a way to get out into the wider world, but it scared me. I felt more suited by temperament to writing alone with a minimum of human interaction. And my upbringing had made it normal to stay isolated and comfortable. The world outside was foreign and isolating. The logjam began to break early that fall when I came across a small item in the Gazette, the suburban newspaper here, about a high school football coach. I had a jolt of inspiration. The coach might be a good subject for a long-form magazine article. And your story about Bob Malloy and what you learned from him and what you learned about being a journalist was really great. And I would just, I recommend it so much for any young person who's thinking about getting into the business. That was, that was, mm. you really, you really had something there. Talk a little bit about that experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I was a lit major in college and, and I didn't, we, I read the Washington Post sports page growing up. You know, I read Tony Kornheiser, Mike Wilbon, Sally Jenkins, great sports columnists in the Washington Post. And but, but we, we didn't really read beyond the sports page growing up. And in college as a lit major, I just really wanted to write the, you know, the greater American novel, or I wanted to write, you know, romantic poetry, just all this stuff that was really 
not all that much in contact with daily life. And 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 journalism and, and newspapers to me were just kind of gross. I was like, oh, it's like it's changing every day. I can't keep track of it, you know. And it's tawdry. I wanted it's, to it's lining the birdcage. Yeah, right? it's not. It's not eternal. It's yes. It's, it's not that. It's this. You know, that that part of it. One of the advantages, of course, that I'm sure you learned as I did, is that that's actually great <laughs> because you get to do it again tomorrow. There's the story R.W. Apple told about Teddy White, which is cornered by a group of journalism students. They asked him if he ever had a piece that didn't turn out the way he wanted. So what do you do? He said, "I publish it because we're going to have another newspaper tomorrow." And yeah. that is it that that the 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 ephemeral nature of journalism is a problem, but it is it, when you learn to to love it, it can be cool. I think I'm still learning to love it in the sense of I'm still disentangling parts of my sort of theology that I was taught growing up that I think do carry over in some ways to make you think of everyday life as the way I was raised, the religion I was raised in definitely devalued the present moment and put more value on, you know, the quote unquote, the eternal, the afterlife, whatever you want to call it. And I'm still learning those lessons about how to be fully present and love the moment and love this created, you know, world. But anyway, I, I, I looked down my nose at newspapers in college and I did this teaching thing. The teaching thing was incredibly hard, uh, not because the kids were bad. It's just because I was teaching high school students and I was 22 and it was, I just didn't know the first thing about how to do that. And then, you know, I, I got, I finished that and I started to write like some poetry and, and tried to write some short, short fiction. And I just realized I didn't know anything about anything. I had very little life experience. I had lived in this very small bubble. There was nothing to draw on to make things interesting or relevant to the average person. I knew enough to know that. And so, yeah. So just for context, a little, a little descriptor about how, and I think, your family story, your story was typical of a lot of what was happening in the American church in the 1980s, which was it was suburban, it was evangelical, and it was it was intense, right? There, there was there this intensity. You paint a picture uh, not of Handmaiden's Tale isolation, but you do paint a picture of somebody who was extraordinarily sheltered and not. I, I certainly related to the part talking about Christian rock. And my mother being like, well, what about this Christian rock? I remember I brought home a Led Zeppelin. It was a Led Zeppelin mirror that I had won at the Washington County Fair. And my mother being freaked out about it because it was devil music. Why don't you listen mm -hmm. to any of these good Christian bands? It's like, well, because they're lame. Mm -hmm. That's why, because they're, <laughs> they're lame. I remember telling, yeah. remember telling her about like, what about you too? Like, huh? Catholic, that's maybe, maybe we could make you a little buy in there. But anyway. Talk a little bit about how, what, what it was like and how sheltered you were from mainstream life, relatively speaking. Yeah. Well, I mean, in practical terms, we spent all our time around other people from our church and our, and my parents became born again Christians in the seventies. And the, the, the period you describe in the eighties was when a lot of that energy from the seventies, the Jesus movement was a very national thing and a very dynamic and powerful thing too, that changed a lot of people's lives. And so by the 80s, a lot of those people that had been either single or newly married in the 70s, had kids, had bought a house, were in their careers, and were, were kind of domesticating what had been sort of a quasi-edgy you know, religious movement. 
And in our particular church, like we started from scratch. My dad was the original, one of the original pastors, not the, the, the original, but one of them. And we had this very clear sense that like, it wasn't just non-Christians who were, who we were better than it was all Christians that weren't in our church that we were also better yeah, than. Yeah. Like we just knew, we just knew better and we had like the secret sauce. And so we kind of kept to ourselves. I think part of it. I remember people talking very disdainfully about dead churches and yeah. like that the, we were alive. Right. These churches were alive. Those churches were dead. And, right. and, and that it was, it was very, it's very judgy. And just to establish my bona fides as completely as possible, when I got to be a reporter and I also started out as a sports writer, but when I, when I got, when I got to be a reporter, my mother told me that there was a character and I don't know whether it was, I, I assume it was in the left behind books, but who was a journalist who became intimate, not in that sense, not in the biblical sense with, I guess the antichrist or some figure of power hmm. And I don't know which which of these books, which of these this eschatological fiction that was very popular. My mother was consuming a lot of, but that I was. She told me that I could be like that person, and that my role in the end times might be that I could play the ro I could play the same role as a journalist who was familiar with people in power. And I was like, if I could get to Charleston, if I could get to the capital city and work there, I think that would be pretty good. But anyway, so I, I just want I just want to talk Amazing. a little bit about the value of starting local and the value of starting small, yeah. because one of the problems I know I'm sure you've seen in newsrooms, which is you got the advantage to learn and, and grow before you moved up. Yeah. I've, I've been thinking about this recently because this whole, one of the most probably life-changing statements of, of my adult life anyway, has been, I could be wrong. Yeah. That's been a very life-changing mantra for me in many respects. I think it's been life-changing for me in terms of faith and helping me grow stronger in my faith. I think it's really helped me in my political engagement, whether that's a personal conversation or whether it's public communications. But it really started for me in those stories I wrote in 2003, probably, about U.S. soldiers killed in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was just sort of making this point to somebody else that there are a lot of mechanisms and structures and best practices in established news organizations that are meant to guide us journalists towards getting things right and not getting things wrong. But it's when you feel the weight of something like, if I spell this guy's name, it's going to insult his memory yeah. and dishonor his family. That's when the weight of getting it right becomes more real. And that's when that statement, I could be wrong, becomes something that you really see in full living color. Because and not just as a you're accountable, theoretical right? thing. You have to be you yeah. have to be accountable to somebody. I have to yeah. I have to read this line because it's so good and it it's it speaks so much to the joy of this work. Malloy, this is the coach of this football team. And you, and by the way, another great thing that you do with this stuff is like every good writer, you pack it with detail. You have a journalist eye for it. What color was the Jeep? What time was the practice? How like just packing it in. But here here's the line. My time with Malloy became the first of many instances when journalism served as a magic carpet, a wonderful gift 
It, it escorted me into places I'd never seen and upended my assumptions about the world. It repaired my cloistered imagination with the balm of reality. Now that's a sentence, brother. Now that is a sentence right there. So I, I love that. Thank you. The, uh, a question that I have been at, I don't, I make a point of not talking about my faith very much because I wrote a piece about this for the dispatch. Yeah. Great piece. Yep. Thank you. Uh, I just, I need, I need my work to be able to stand on its own. And I, I, I need not to like be a Christian journalist. I need to be a journalist who's a Christian um, for a lot of reasons, many of which re relate to my not wanting to spoil the message in either direction. But a question yeah. that I've gotten many times is, is it hard to be a Christian in the news business? And I think yeah. often from Christians, the question comes as a, like, you're among these godless heathens. <laughs> you, you work in the belly of the beast. And what's that like for you? And do you feel persecuted? I think that, and my experience says, any job that you're going to do can become a false idol, right? Any work that you can do, you can, you can worship the work and you can, and I'm sure in my life, I have on many occasions allowed my worship of my work and vocational success become an object of worship. But I don't think, and I've never been an insurance executive, but I don't think that it's probably that much different than other professions. If you want to practice it at a high level and you want to, and you want to go hard at it, I don't think it's that much different. What is your take? Man, I have so many thoughts about this. First of all, the whole a journalist who's a Christian, not a Christian journalist thing, that is something that has been fundamental to my approach to my work since the very, very, very beginning. And I got that notion from C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you did as well. But, you know, he had this quote where he said, we don't need more Christian writers. We need more writers about geology and science and literature and politics and history who are Christians, but their, their faith is latent mm -hmm. and it, and it pervades and permeates and comes through and it's real, but it's not a label. That's why I loved your piece in, in the dispatch about this. Some of the things you said about the reasons for why you don't talk about your faith. I'm on the same page and I've been on that page pretty much since day one. And I've also, I wrote a piece for Christianity Today a year and a half ago or something called, you know. I, I read it. Not only did I read it, but my pastor sent it to me. So I know it was good. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I addressed the very same question you just raised, which is a lot of people seem to always ask that question. Is it hard to be a journalist and be a Christian? And something you said stood out to me. You mentioned the word persecution. and And I think there is... I don't know if I had connected these dots before, but I, I think there's a lot of, you know, alarmism mm -hmm. among, you know, crisis entrepreneurs, crisis merchants in media and politics who are making money and making a name for themselves off of telling their audience how bad the other side is and how you just got to give me money and keep listening to me and I'll tell you what to do to fight back and all this stuff. So I think the whole idea that if you're, in Washington amongst all these people, you must be getting really persecuted is probably tied in somewhat to that. And I don't know. I, I think it was the, what's the congressman who was the youngest 
Madison Cawthorn. Oh my gosh. He had that comment about how there are all these orgies and sex parties and drugs in DC. Totally. And it's a lifestyle. And that's how a lot of people think of DC as well. Right. He was dead. When in reality, I'm sure that happens, but like the, I just told a, a, a profile writer at the Washington Post, like, you should write about this guy, Steve Dwyer. He worked for Steny Hoyer for 20 years and could have left and made a bunch of money, but he's going to stay working in Congress on the committee to modernize Congress, to try to make the institution better. And he's going to keep coaching Little League soccer for his daughters. Like, these are the people who make the city run. The th one of the things that people profoundly misunderstand about Washington, in my experience, is that 95% of the people here think they're helping and they're trying to make it better. And most of them are not cynical. Most of them are trying to do a good job. And yeah. the funhouse mirror, the straw man version of the opposition that they have come to believe, a lot of which is driven by the media narratives that you describe, allows them, creates a permission structure, if you will pardon the use of a terrible phrase, but it creates a permission structure for them to do invidious, mean, callow things mm -hmm. because they're fighting this other demonic force on the other side. But if, mm. if you could really you know, give them sodium pentothal, they would tell you they were doing it for good reasons. And they get lost along the way sometimes. But most of the people who are here think that they're helping. And the number of people who I have encountered who really are like, you know, every place that I have worked in Washington, I have been impressed to meet really fine people. Re I've met some real stinkers. I mean, hey, I've, <laughs> I've, I've met some real stinkers along the way, but I met some stinkers yeah. in West Virginia too. And I bet people who sure. work in the insurance business or whatever, the software business, meet plenty of stinkers there too. I just, I don't think that it's a different, I don't think it, I don't think that the laws of human nature apply differently inside journalism than they do in other places. Okay. Here is you talking about working at the Daily Caller. In 2009 and 2010, I worked for Tucker Carlson, helping him launch the Daily Caller website. During this time, I was gaining stature in Washington as an up-and-coming reporter. This is true. Fact check, this is true. And I know it's true because when I was talking about going to work over there, you were like the, like, well, John Ward, the, the fresh young face, and all the people who had worked with you at the Washington Times and had seen you, had identified you as this guy who brought, and I think this comes through in your book, you brought a you were a you were a star athlete in high school and you brought jock energy to the work mm. right you were going to out hustle out work and you were clearly busting your ass it was an obvious like and and you definitely impressed after 8 years at the washington times i was not awash in the buzz of working for a media celebrity who could attract real attention and knew how to leverage it carlson in 2009 was not yet a right wing demagogue months before he'd given me a speech in what he had made, in which he had made a compelling case for how conservatives could reform the news media. When the Daily Caller launched, Carlson was a dynamo sitting for profiles with big newspapers and websites, hosting dinners at his home and making us laugh all day. Our office was like a Silicon Valley kickoff, ping pong tables, beer keg and bean bags. I think you could say something similar about Andrew Breitbart. I think you could say something similar about what happened at Fox. I think you could say similar things about a lot of what happened at the right and the right side media, which is at the beginning of that speech that you referenced from Carlson, he's talking about, it's gotta be fair. It's gotta be good. It's gotta be valuable. It's gotta be 
whatever. And the, the, the mantra from right-wing journalism in those days was basically, we just need it to be fair, right? Fox's old slogan was, if it's, you know, fair and balanced, then it will be, it will be counter-programming the mainstream media to begin with. Simply by being fair, it will be a triumph. That's a speech Brit Hume used to give. That was a, hmm. a, a calling card of the new right media, and the Daily Caller was going to be part of that. That is not, hmm. in fact, what happened. Hmm. Uh, what happened? Yeah. Oh, man, that's a big question. And and it's a book on it all on its own. And I'm sure some of them are being written actually right now. I know there's a journalist working on a book about Tucker that he's been working on it for a couple of years. I just can't remember his name, which is, which I'm sorry. It's a really big question. Yeah. I mean, that speech was early 2009 and it was at CPAC. CPAC was the conservative political action conference was already a bit of a circus. But CPAC was a good barometer for how it was interesting. Crazy things kind of got. Right. It was it was a circus, but it was a diverse circus. It was like you got the libertarian weirdos, and then you yeah. got these weirdos, right. and you got that guy, and it was where the mainstream met the weirdos and the activists and the young yeah. and old. And it used to be up at the old Omni up in yeah. up by the zoo, and it was you know like it was a freak show, but it was an interesting diverse freak show. And then it became just one thing. It's hard to know. It's hard to answer your question, though, you know, without in it, without kind of thinking, what would the alternative universe be if Trump had never come along? Because there were a lot there was a lot of th stuff happening, a lot of populist energy that came about around the time of the Tea Party in 2010, which was building and building and building. But the thing we're kind of talking about media information, the right and and their view of, of the media and of reality of the world. And the striking thing to me about Trump is that going back to probably Barry Goldwater in the sixties, the right had a very skeptical antagonistic view of, of the media. Sure. And you had a lot of politicians run against the media and Newt Gingrich probably took that to a new level in the nineties. And, and then it just kind of continued to build and build and build. So there was this very, and the, you know, there was legitimate complaints about the media, you know, the bias of the, the Dan Rather stories. Right. Uh, Bernie Goldberg's book, the, the, yes. that, that kind of stuff. And it was definitely yes. a folk way on the American right about, it's sort of, I think you can draw a parallel between that and election fraud, which is in the 1960s, you could have asked any Republican, was the 1960 election fairly contested? Absolutely not, they would have said. They stole it. Sam Giancana stole it in Chicago. They cheated. They cheated. They cheated. And mm. the, the, the trope about mm. big city election fraud has an ancient history in the Republican Party. By the way, Republican big city machines used to cheat, too. Mm. When, when Chicago and Philadelphia used to have Republican uh, mayoralty, they cheated in elections, too. But mm -hmm. that if you would have talked to a Republican in the 1960s about the press, they would have told you the same thing. Right. They right, never gave right. Barry Goldwater a shot. They said this about Nixon. In fact, you could tell a lot of the Watergate story around how Republican skepticism of the press and Republican mistrust of the press. So as the as the Watergate story is unfolding in The Washington Post, what is the the message to <laughs> the message to Nixon's faithful Republicans was they're after me again. 
the 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 right. unfair press. They worship JFK. They hate me, and they're out after me. And then I th- I I think. Tell me what you think. Yeah, those old strains that were present in the American right for a long time were fighting for a the, what what the what Fox provided or promised to provide, what the Daily Caller promised to provide. In fact, what the Washington Times initially promised to provide was this counterbalance, right? We're mm-hmm. going to we're going to mm-hmm. keep it we're going to keep it straight, we're going to play it straight. But we're going to we're going to we're going to be we're going to provide balance out here to what's available. And when the Washington Times launched, it was the very first like people were subscribing to it around the country because it was like, wow, can you believe it? It's a right-leaning daily newspaper. And audience capture that followed in the digital era, where you could know too much about what your audience wanted, led very mm. quickly <laughs> to not saying, well, we're going to play it straight and, and, and do the kind of journalism that we've been saying for decades that we wanted the mainstream to do, to doing exactly what they had accused the mainstream of doing, often ca- in many cases, often much worse. Yeah, the counterbalance that the Washington Times and and others and Fox probably, you know, intended to provide at the beginning was about story selection and story emphasis a lot of the time. And what happened with, I think, the Internet and social media and smartphones is that, you know, I remember when when it just fractured everything, when Obama came into office in 08 and it, it got rid of the gatekeepers. So 08, I'm covering the White House. White House, I guess this is early 09. One of my first interviews with Robert Gibbs was to talk about how fractured the, you know, the information landscape was, the news landscape was. And that was really before everybody had smartphones. And so I think internet technology, smartphones, and then Trump, and you have this diseased sort of branch that's connecting, you know, the tree of reality to the to the to the branches of Republican voters. And Trump came along and saw that branch as diseased and and barely hanging on by a thread and just snapped it in half yep. and and took people with him down down this rabbit trail of an alternative reality. And the technological advances helped make that possible. And Trump's shamelessness helped make it possible. And I think your point about data analytics and audience targeting and, you know, immediate feedback loops is a big part of that story too. Here's a line from your book. Trump was good at outrage. He was he was he also was intent on discrediting the media and destroying the idea that truth could be known. Trump set himself up as the yeah. only source of reality. This was scary enough, but he also encouraged violence. As we entered 2016 and he gained steam, I began to warn family and friends, especially those I thought would be wise enough to see through his deceptions. The you know the old joke about what how politicians treat their political base, that they treat them like mushrooms. Have you ever heard that one? No, I haven't. No. You keep them in the dark and you cover them with horse manure. <laughs> That's what you do with your base. You isolate and and don't let them hear it from somebody else. And I look, I don't want to understate Trump's capacity as a media savvy, like Donald Trump was was born in the acid bath of New York tabloid journalism. John Barron, who is planting headlines about his sexual prowess in the New York Post, is a guy who certainly, and by the way, was actually a television producer. So he was definitely a good media manipulator. But I, I also think that 
the fragmentation made isolation so much easier, right? That once people using Facebook, using whatever, had had self-segregated themselves, right, into these pockets where the affinities were so narrow. And this may, this was particularly problematic for evangelical Christians. And I think one of the things that your book does so well, so one of the the marks between, and, and I'm, I promised Eliana this would not be a theological podcast, but one of the differences that emerged in the American church in the 1980s and into the 1990s was a focus on the end of the world and the focus on these are the the, the final days. Now, this was not a new thing. You sketch out in your book the, the roots back to the late great planet Earth and that that as this even in the beginning of the Jesus movement of the 1970s, but the eschatological bent that came in. And of course, in periods of social upheaval, this is something that you're going to see among Christians, right? When things get weird and things get chaotic, even a light touch on the book of Revelation makes a person say, well, is this, is this what we've been talking about? Is yeah. that, you know, are we here? And the Mike Flynn... Armageddon sect of the Republican Party, right? The Kathy Barnett who ran for Senate in Pennsylvania. There is this strong current running through and it lives next door to QAnon. And I think one of the the most interesting parts of your book is where you really talk about how QAnon, if you're, if you are not raised in the evangelical church and you are not around, you did not grow up around these people, Hearing what the prophecies of QAnon, like no one would ever believe this. No one would ever do it. But you do a good job because what you say is, okay, think about that, but now start with the premise that the world is ending and that there's spiritual warfare being fought all around you, that there is a spirit world all around you in which angels and demons, named angels and demons, are in battle with one another and that you're calling down an airstrike of angels upon your enemies and that that is all happening, right? You know, we're, we're going to Arby's to get a big beef and cheddars, but around us is this intense spiritual warfare that's taking place. And if that's the tradition that you were raised in and that's your theological rooting, then Mike Flynn starts to sound sensible, right? Like that start like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about the media landscape being fractured, you have a whole cottage industry now that probably is only, I don't know, five, six, seven years old of people like Dutch Sheets and Lance Wall now who are part of something that academics would call the new apostolic reformation, Yep. which these are people who just sort of go out there and say, God told me this, God told me that. And like Lance Wallnow and Dutch Sheets, I think both will do like a, di- what they're really good at is being prodigious content machines. And they produce a show like every day, just like Hugh Hewitt does, just like Al Mohler does, you know, these other figures on the right that are influential. Part of the key to that is just producing a, a steady stream, a, a drumbeat of content. Yeah. Yeah. And so these guys just go on and they say, God told me this, God told me that. And there are a lot of people who will sign up for that and just and that becomes their main source of quote unquote information. And if people are interested in learning about this new apostolic reformation, which is 
kind of one half of my history in the church. Like one half of the church that I grew up in went off in this direction. And there's a podcast series called Charismatic Revival Fury. And it's eight part series. If you just Google that phrase, it should come up. And it's a great history by an academic, well told about the last 30 years of this. These are people who have really departed from any connection to like a fact-based worldview and just live in this realm in which the way that God communicates mostly is not through, you know, natural revelation, not through like experiencing, you know, the life as we can see it and touch it. It's through these prophets and apostles who have special dispensation to, to hear from God and tell you what God is saying. So it's, you know, for anybody who's sort of thinking about this ra rationally, that's clearly a recipe for disaster. Right. But, but, but there are all of these ingredients, many of them decades or even more than that in the making that have created a lot of pockets of churches and movements where people are kind of primed to just sort of believe these guys and not believe people in the media. Right. And, and be beyond post small R Republic post everything. It's already over. We're already, and we're not going to talk about millennialism and, and, and that stuff, but that we're, we're in, we're in the aftertime already, right? We're already here in, in this hellscape and, by the way, when you're listening to my podcast, you're going to see some ads for bunker preparation. You're going to see ads for where to get your shortwave radio so you don't get disconnected from the information feed. I mean, you want to think about uh, audience capture in the sense of capturing your audience, sell them a shortwave radio so that they can get updates about where to buy MREs so that they will be ready for the apocalypse. The Can I just say one more thing about anything. that? Yeah, I mean, I, I I wrote a piece about this charismatic revival fury podcast, and I heard from a member of the Art Republican National Committee who who read my piece. You know, this is an establishment Republican who is definitely like a church going Christian, but he was just like, "Who are they?" Like he had never heard of these people, and I think that's that's pretty common for a lot of people. And, and yet it's a large number of people. I think the academic who did that project said that the latest survey of American religion found that the largest group of American Protestants is non-denominational independent churches at like around 20 million people. The next largest group is Southern Baptist at 17 million. And if you take about half of that 20 million who would be called charismatic or believing in more of these signs and wonders and prophecies, you know, that's a lot of people who are in that bu bucket of, of folks. And I, I, I don't want to dwell here, but you plotted a course about, you told, this is a very personal story that you told, and I'm sure it was a hard story to tell, but you plot this trajectory where in your family, they were not political and it was abortion. And this was true, certainly in, churches I went to, abortion was the first way in on politics, right? Abortion is, okay, this is for these babies, save these babies. This is a sort of un, uncontestable thing. And it united evangelical Protestants, but also Roman Catholics and other where it was, okay, this is, this is a important cause 
and that grew in part in a backlash against so the 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 mainstream church mainline or mainstream church had gotten very political in the 1960s and into the 1970s fighting against segregation and against the Vietnam War and there had been a politicization of the of the church mostly in a left facing way um and then there was this backlash and part of that was abortion look at this and as you wrote in the book it, it abortion made it simple, which was you can't vote for a Democrat because Democrats support abortion. So you have to vote Republican. And that was as far as your thinking had to go. Right. It was not necessary to, to have the next thought, because how could you support murder? And this created a space for real mischief on the political right. And you talk about it in your book, but it, uh, we've heard it. We've seen it in the survey work. The big argument at the end for many Christians to support Donald Trump was, oh, you judges. Yeah. You want abortion? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. You're going to vote for Hillary Clinton and enshrine abortion. So let me ask this. Now that Roe v. Wade has fallen and Donald Trump of, of whatever campaign promises Donald Trump did not deliver, Mexico, they did not build the wall and Mexico did not pay for it. Of all the campaign promises he did not deliver on, the one that he did deliver on was he ended Roe v. Wade. He he packed the the in the small lowercase p, packed the federal judiciary with Federalist Society conservative judges and abortion, the Roe v. Wade went down. How does that affect and it's hard to tell right now in 2022, 2024, because the states are still sorting it out. But talk about the trajectory for what happens in the future around the question of abortion and politics. I think with Trump, it's interesting because it in some ways could free evangelicals to go with somebody else now that they've gotten that, you know, deal from him. I'm sure for some it'll sort of make them retain support for, for Donald Trump. But I don't know. I, I personally think that there's still a lot of game left to play in the Republican primary and and I'm clearly there's a, a hardcore Trump base still. I I don't I don't look at polling numbers all the time, but my my sense is that, you know, there's a lot of desire for an alternative and that there's time for donors and party elders to kind of say to the candidates this fall at some point, like, we got to consolidate into one behind one candidate. Whether they can do that, I don't know. But that kind of is the question. As I, as, I, as, um, as I like to say, it doesn't matter how many get in, it matters how many get out. Yeah. In, in is not the problem. Everybody, yeah. go for it. You want to run, you want to go kick the tires, see whether anybody's interested, go do right. it. But if on the last day of February, if you are still a single digit hanger on saying, yeah. well, we got to get, once once we get to Florida, then things are going to, mm -hmm. if that's, that's when, and Democrats actually conducted themselves that way in 2020, right? They recognized right. Yeah. the threat and everybody except for Bernie dropped out and- cleared the lane for Biden. So maybe maybe the Republicans will learn something. Okay, last two things I want to ask you. Number one, reading about your relationship with your family was wrenching. I listened to your book on tape and I was, I have touched on, you know, I, I have touched lightly on, you know, the media problem. In my book, in my most recent book, I talked about the, 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 the problem that emerged with my dad and overconsumption of 
of TV news, Fox News in the 2012 election and how weird it got and how sad it was for me that basically I couldn't talk about politics with my dad anymore. And that had been a mainstay of, we had all of my life had been talking about history, politics, some baseball, but basically history and politics were the mainstays of our conversations and many long conversations. And we couldn't talk about that because he got so angry talking about Barack Obama. Why did you feel it was necessary in this book to talk about these really painful things in your family and how your work and how politics and how the media divided your family and caused that pain? What was, why? I think the simple answer is that I know that there's a lot of people who have experienced similar things. And I don't know if it helps to read somebody else's experience, but I think it does. And I didn't handle it well at times. They didn't handle it well at times. Yeah, you told on yourself a couple of times. I thought that was very much to your credit Mm -hmm. that instead of a narrative Mm -hmm. where they were knuckle-dragging Cro-Magnons and you were the enlightened soul, you, you you, you called your own BS a couple of times, and I thought that was really cool. It's just not credible to tell a story where you're the hero all the time. I mean, we're all going to tell our own stories to some degree, but yeah, that's not credible and it's not, it's not accurate. But I think the thing that made it hard for me in particular is that I just never felt comfortable doing horse race coverage of the Trump presidency. I was, I I was, I was clear that this was not normal behavior for a democracy. I was clear that a, a, a politician who was the choice of a third of, of his political party. There was something off about the way that it happened and it represented some kind of breakdown in how parties are supposed to function. So I was doing a lot of work around trying to understand, just in my professional, like what I actually published, trying to understand and, and, and be solutions oriented and trying to, to contribute to uh, the health of our democracy and you know if i had just like written donald trump did this or whatever and my dad had an opinion about it that'd be one thing but there was something about the way i was doing my work and then feeling like my parents and my family were were just not they were kind of rejecting not just what i was doing but almost like they were rejecting me and at points i was actually asking them like i i'm concerned for you know I'm, I'm disturbed. I'm concerned. And I just would get sort of like rationalizations of what Trump was doing. So at the end of the day, and this isn't in the book, but I talked, my dad read the book, had a, had a lot of issues with it, but in talking through it, I was able to like communicate to him that dad, I don't care if we disagree on this stuff, but I want our relationship to be based around, I'm your son. I have a career. I have a family. I'm accomplishing things. I would love it. If I could just get your encouragement and support and have you as my, like in my corner and my cheerleader, rather than all of this political stuff being a, a cause of angry argument or just silence, right? which I don't, I still don't talk to him about politics to this day for that reason. And he heard that and our relationship has gotten a hell of a lot better oh, I love to hear as a result. I love to hear that because yeah. he sounds yeah. like a good man. He, he sounds like he's a good man. And that makes me very happy to hear that you guys are on a better footing. You, this line, the, talking about Donald Trump and the, his attacks on the press. 
Yeah. The threat was not imminent, but it was real. It gave me a window into the way that marginalized people felt about their own physical safety under government regimes that threatened them in far, far more immediate and violent ways. And you talk about how the the targeting of the press, the marginalization of the press, even if, right, even if we grant that it was mostly performative, it was mostly whatever, and that compared to what other journalists elsewhere in the world are facing, all those caveats attached, that it gave you an understanding of what it was like to be afraid. And I, I can tell you that I have been places since 2015 where I felt physically unsafe because of my job. I can definitely tell you that there have been physical security concerns yeah. and even not traveling, even not when I was going into it. Um, so I, I can definitely relate to that. You talk about how you are, tr how, how this experience, that knowledge changed you. And what I heard from you was somebody who is, as a journalist who is a Christian, I'm sure you've heard the line, I don't know who said it first, preach the gospel constantly using words if absolutely necessary. But what I read in the closing chapter of your book, closing chapters of your book, was the story of a Christian who wants to be a better living witness and wants to be a person who embodies a faith and exemplifies a faith in his work, in his personal life, and in his professional life that acknowledges marginalized people, that acknowledges the suffering of others, that, that is more humane, and that you are really calling yourself that, you know, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure, which sort of brings us back to where we began. That's a big marker to lay down, right? That you are going, that you laid all of this out here. You talked about your journey. You talked about what you learned, and now you've got to go live it. And and yeah. talk 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 about what it's like now, and how you how you want to be now. Well, I mean that's that's a big question, and I, but I appreciate it. It's good. Like there's things in my life right now that I'm just thinking about that I need to do a better job at. But you know the standard of living it out. Like if if we're not doing that, then I don't know why we're doing any of this. Right. I'm just not interested in in BS. I'm not interested in hypocrisy. I'm not interested in labels. I'm interested in reality. And I think, you know, I, I don't feel like I've, there were two, there were two things, two roads I could have gone down that would have put me in more of a box where I would have felt uncomfortable. One would have been to say, I've got this all figured out and I'm doing right. great. Yep. And here are the 10 things you should do to be like me. <laughs> and I definitely didn't do that. And the other thing I could have done would just like sort of talk about the book in that way and allow TV bookers or whatever to like say, okay, you're going to be the go-to guy to talk about here's the Christian point of view yep. on X and no interest in that at all. Like that to me, it sounds horrible. It's back um, to ghettoization, back to Christian rock. Like, oh, it's not as yeah. good, but it's Christian. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I, you know, I feel pretty good about where I'm at. And I, you know, I like the journalist who's a Christian because he's a little salty or she's a little salty and it's a little messy. But at the end of the day, like they're really trying hard to do the right thing. And that's not just journalists, but, you know, that's my 
That's my tribe. Yeah. And, and I love journalists and, and I'm so grateful to have spent the last 20 years in this profession. It's just been a huge gift. Richard Halverson, who was the Senate chaplain for a long time, uh, who was also the pastor at New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, had a blessing that he would give. It'll get me choked up. Uh, he had a blessing that he would give that an old pastor of mine favored, which is wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, Christ who indwells you is working through you. And, uh, excuse me, for me, that is why I call journalism a vocation, right? You're called to do it. You have to feel the calling to want to go do it. You have to feel the calling to want to go do this weird thing that doesn't pay <laughs> when you start out. When you were writing for the, when you were writing about the football program at a high school for the Gazette, you were not like, this is the pathway to riches. This is the road <laughs> by which the filthy lucre will pile at my feet. It is something you have to feel called to. And then it's something that once you're in it, you have to continue to try to be present in as a Christian. And that's really hard. And I really want to thank you for joining us today, of course. But I also want to thank you for sharing your witness and telling this story in a hard, frank way and being personal with it and doing all the stuff that I would never do because I am too much of a chicken. And But I really, I really appreciate it. And I think people will get a lot out of it. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for your, you know, emotion and, and like feeling and your response to this. And I'd also just like to thank my parents because the calling you talk about, a lot of the source material for my sense of calling, it comes from the way they raised me and their example. And so I'm very grateful to them. Amen. Amen. Okay. John Ward, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Okay, Rechos, you have to promise not to tell Eliana that I got choked up during that interview or I'll be in big trouble. But thanks for coming along for that. And of course, we'll be back next week with more Rech Excellence and Eliana. So have a great day. We'll talk to you soon.